Welcome to Cinemit, and this episode we have decided to tackle a heavyweight of American auteur cinema. A man who directed 34 feature films that were released into cinemas, as well as countless TV movies and series films before he made it big, after he made it big, and during this period at the top. Honoured with a fairly comprehensive retrospective at the BFI South Bank this May, June, July, as well as a shorter five-film season at uh, our host Cinema Quad in Derby, today we are looking at the career of the master of the ensemble cast, Robert Altman. I am your host, Adam Marsh, and I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you doing, Daryl? Very good, thanks, Adam. And uh, Altman's a, a big, big favourite with me. I've uh, loved his films over the years, so looking forward to uh, a chance to uh, chat about them and uh, talk about um, some of the uh, the weird connections and weird sort of overlapping things that he puts into his films. I have to be honest, Daryl. I've seen a lot of films in my years. Um, Altman is a fairly big gap in my uh, viewing history. I think I'd seen maybe three, maybe four of his films. So four out of 34. It ain't, ain't a good basis for doing a podcast. So I've pretty much binged about another 10 or 12 films in the last few weeks to try and get up to speed on this. Yeah. <laughs> so. have, have you found that he's a filmmaker who is is good for that? You know, if you binge watch his films, did, have you have you found sort of themes and connections sort of emerging? Absolutely, yeah. You you start to see the uh, particularly with the ensemble cast ones. They're they're there for all to see. You can see how a ma- how like something like Mash uh, begat Nashville, which begat. A wedding, which begat Gosford Park. You know, you, you can see those connections in this, but also within the storylines as well. I mean, he 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 liked ensemble casts, um, but equally, the themes and the political themes and the satire that is inherent in most of his films, um, and the specific political themes that come through in certain films like Nashville, like A Secret Honor, like. Uh, like um, even in Gosford Park, you know, with the the, the class structure of that, uh, a wedding has got a similar dynamic. You start to see those traits in his work that puts him as an auteur rather than just a filmmaker. Definitely. Altman's films um, all stand alone, you know, they're all individual movies, but um, as an overall career, you can see those, those little... Um, overlaps and and little almost sort of self-references you know he'll he'll use the same actors in similar parts or sometimes in very different parts but the 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 difference and the the fact that it's the same actor sort of says something he's he's trying to convey a message there by doing that or there are little batches of films that that work as as clumps together like um he made films on the subject of uh, female neurosis or sort of psychosis in in his his women characters. Made the, the a batch of ensemble films, as you say, that uh, um, that are all separate but all sort of linked together in the fact that they're all based on the same sort of formula. Did in the early eighties did that series of um, stage adaptations, bringing stage plays to to the screen. And, and not really 
doing doing much to make them particularly cinematic you know in or maybe an influence on when uh, you know directors like Lars von Trier have done that later on um in doing those sort of bare minimum almost almost as though the film that you're watching is like a, a an acting class or a rehearsal or something Altman was sort of the master of that sort of style so yeah so yeah you get a lot of uh, a lot of sort of similarities between these little groups of films yeah I mean we saw you saw some of that influence of sort of like the stage the stage play being filmed in this year's Oscars with Ma Rainey's Black Bottom which is essentially just a, sta- a stage play film yeah know? yeah and, and 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 a few years ago with Fences with Denzel Washington uh, same playwright but that kind of style it's like it's very much a love or hate style and i love it i love yeah. i love films that look like stage plays and i know that people say oh it's not very cinematic and they didn't really do much to break it beyond the confines of the room or confines of the it's like well i don't care i like i like that kind of feel to a film mm. and yeah and, and, and altman did a run of those films in the 80s yeah but the thing with altman is that he can do that and he can also do films set in the wide open spaces and he can do cinematic absolutely so he's 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 sort of got everything you know he's he's he tried everything and he's he's he seems to be a, a, a master of pretty much everything, you know. So, I mean, I, I refer to him as the master of the ensemble cast in, the, in my own introduction there. Is he a master of the ensemble cast? Or does he, is he liked so much by actors that he consistently wants to bring them back? But as he works with more actors, he has to bring back more actors yeah. and ends up getting massive casts. Well, I think both of those things are right. Yes, he is a master of the ensemble cast, but yes... Actors love working with him and he loves working with them. Having said that, he's also the director of Secret Honor, which has got a cast of one. So Absolutely, yeah. It's a stunning film, that as it well. Is, I mean, it like, is. Um, it really took me by surprise, that movie. And, and many of his films also focus on one particular character as well. Um, he likes the sort of like the, 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 as much as he likes the, the, the psychosis in women in there, he also likes the flawed male characters and, oh, yeah. and that kind of stuff. Because he, he comes back to those central characters repeatedly in things like California Split, in um, Long Goodbye, in Secret Honor. You can't get much more of a flawed central male character than Richard Nixon, can you? No. Um, so he just, he just come back to those. So he, he has a wide range of go-tos that he that, he, that he's comfortable doing which probably accounts for the fact that he's in 30 odd films in his career yeah yeah well let's let's start let's not start at the very beginning because he had directed films prior to 1970 uh, 1971 and lots of tv as and well. a lot yeah. of tv yeah. yeah he done he done so much tv beforehand but his his really big coming out party as it were was the film the film adaptation of the book mash uh, which itself spawned a, a very long-running, very successful television sitcom um, for, that ran for many years afterwards. Yeah, I think the, the TV show has sort of eclipsed Altman's movie in a mm. way. Would you agree? Yeah, uh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the sort of like talk of that nine, 1982 it finished and, and people talking about the viewing figures for the last episode of MASH was still being talked about when I was when I was in my teens in the, in the early nineties. People were still talking about how many people gathered round the TV to watch the end of Mash. Yeah, and I, I wonder how many of of that mass Mash TV audience, not just for the finale, but over over the years of the series. I'm, I'm sure a lot of them never even knew that there was a movie. No, yeah, I can, I can definitely see. Yeah, I can see that. Um, um, and. Uh, 
Yeah, but it, it sort of kicked off with Altman and he really set the tone for the TV show in the film, I think. Yes, definitely. I mean, he, um, the sort of like the, the, the major cast of characters, it, his approach to cinema in some ways is very TV where you set up a new show and you have a wide range of characters because you know you're going to be running for 20 odd episodes a season and you need to be able to keep interest levels up and explore different characters. He does the same thing, but in a in a two-hour movie. Yeah, yeah. You know, he, he approaches it in the same way where he sets up so many characters. Yeah, and that's why he can, he can do a film like Nashville or he can do a long-form thing like Shortcuts. And those longer films, especially Nashville, which is a, a, a end-to-end narrative, works like a TV series in that your your characters flit in and out of it and uh, you could almost divide Nashville up into episodes, you know, and, and show it as a six-episode series and it would work like one because you'd see Lily Tomlin popping in and out of it or you'd see Keith Carradine or you'd see Henry Gibson appearing in every few scenes, you know, but mm. then overlapping with other characters. So... Um, Again, Altman's great at uh, the ensemble, but uh, I, I, I think his TV background filters through to to his movie work in in that way, and um, gives it. I, I, you know, you could even go so far as calling it almost, almost a soap opera quality at times. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think with Mash, he definitely, um, in a number of ways, jumped jumps ahead of the queue. He he definitely nailed that comedy, the anarchic comedy that was in the era and that period, the anti-establishment. Um, even though it's set in Korea, it's obviously about Vietnam in some ways. Um, it jumps the gun on Catch-22, which was being prepared at the major studio and comes out as the leaner, meaner, um, uh, less unwieldy as uh, uh, film of that kind of style. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, it, it immediately established him. Yeah. And, um, you know, you, you've, you've got all the characters right there that, that everyone came to know and love from the TV series, but uh, played, played by movie stars rather than mm-hmm. the TV stars of, of the later show, you know. Um, and it must be quite weird viewing for fans of the, the TV series if they backtrack and come to Altman's film later on to see all their favorite characters, but, with sort of unfamiliar um, faces and unfamiliar personalities. I mean, I, I was fairly familiar with the TV show growing up and seeing Donald Sutherland playing Hawkeye felt weird and felt miscast in, yeah, in a yeah. weird way, even though Donald Sutherland was was the first. In fact, in going in, I, I had never seen the film prior to me first watching it. And I assumed Elliot Gould was playing Hawkeye because mm. it seems like a more of a, a more fit that'd for be, him. That'd be more of a match, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, it, and and it's not. It's, it's it's the other way around. And uh, yeah, and and he plays Trapper brilliantly. Yeah. No, yeah. don't get me wrong. He's fantastic in it. But yeah, it's 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 hard to imagine anyone other than Alan Alda in that role. But that said, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I think there's certain traits that come into his work early on, even the little things like announcing the cast over the tannoy. Yeah. Which comes back two or three times in his that in the seventies. It in really, schools, yeah. Particularly, yeah. yeah. obviously, in Bruce and McLeod, it happens, mm-hmm. but it also happens in Nashville. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they have these interesting ways of getting the credits across, I guess, um, which felt fresh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
um, we've, we've talked about how Altman has got these little clumps of films that sort of connect together and how there are certain themes that he sort of keeps returning to every every few films or so. But the, the one overriding thing about his whole career is I think almost every single one of his films is satirical in some form or ever. And that really kicks off here, you know. And I, th- I think that whole way of dealing with the movie credits is um, is one way of sort of having a go at the establishment. He's actually attacking the idea of cinema itself there. You know, he's being satirical about his own profession, biting the hand that feeds him. Mm. Brewster McLeod is brilliant in that sense. It opens with the MGM logo. Uh, so you've got Leo the Lion there from MGM and you're expecting the lion's roar. And instead of that, you get to René Aubergenois saying, uh, I forgot the first line. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what a way to kick off a movie. So, yeah, and he, uh, and he comes back to that. I mean, again, in Nashville, at the start of Nashville, he has the credits like a bottom-of-the-barrel um, TV uh, advertised compilation album. Oh, your yeah. favourite hits here at Nashville, Nashville, Nashville. All oh, your favourite hits. You know, and he, and he introduces the cast through through that. Yeah, it is, like like a KTEL LP or yeah, something. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah, which is which is fascinating because the trailer for Nashville is much is, is very different. It mm. almost goes against what he's saying there. Yeah. And obviously he didn't have any control over the trailer mm. for, the, for the film that was done by... Paramount's yeah. marketing. Well, that's always the case with, with an uncom- unconventional artist like Altman, especially when you're an unconventional artist working in in the mainstream, you know, your work's always going to be misrepresented wherever they can misrepresent it. So, <laughs> yeah. But but the, the films themselves, you know, he, he had firm control over and made sure that he got the message across. Yeah, MASH, MASH is an almost perfect way for him to start. As, as, as you say, he'd made films before then, and there's, there's one in particular that I want to refer to later on. But MASH is very much... The, the the first Robert Altman satire, I think, and um, really sets the tone for for the rest of his career. And then he, and he followed that up with Brewster McCloud, which I know you're a big fan of this. I, one. I love it. Yeah, yeah. And I, it's one of those movies that I recognised was a comedy, mm-hmm. and I enjoyed it. But it's like a comedy without any laughs. Yeah. In yeah. A, in a in a straight. Every time it comes towards a punchline, it kind of swerves left instead of yeah. right. Um, a very unusual movie, and I think it's a movie I need to watch two or three times to to really understand it. But I could see the influences yeah. on, on on particularly on young filmmakers, definitely, and, yeah. and having yeah. the having the uh, Sally Kellerman character as a sort of like guardian angel kind of yeah, character. like a, like a muse, like a muse yeah, running yeah. in and out. Is, of the is, movie. Is, is is she real or not? We we ne- we never know. We never find out. We never need to know. No, exactly. But you get those kind of gimmicks in a lot of like nineties yeah. wannabe art cinema. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think even before the end of the seventies, um, there's there's a certain style within the the sort of anti comedy of Brewster McCloud. I think if Brewster McCloud looks as though it's not aged particularly well and is is this sort of anti-comedy, is the comedy without any laughs, you know, I, th- I think we're probably seeing it very differently to the way that an audience would have judged it in 1970. Um, I think it would have looked really, really fresh then. I don't think there'd have been another film like it or like MASH for, for that matter. I think, I think these, these two films would, people would have looked at them and said, Oh, there's, there's a new, there's a new voice here. Mm. There's someone who's telling us something different. Altman, right from the start, right from these early movies is sort of 
having a go at the movie business. He's having a go at America itself. Look at how throughout his films, he, he always tries to get in many of his films, tries to get in um, a, a warped, disrespectful version of the Star Spangled Banner mm-hmm. or the American flag or both, you know. That happens so often. And here it is right at the start of Brewster McLeod, you know. We've, we've got the Wicked Witch of the West, no less, Margaret Hamilton, uh, belting out this terrible version of the American National Anthem and then stopping it and stopping the band and going and instructing everyone on how to play. And it's it's just... So, so sort of disrespectful to uh, American tradition and American ideals. And um, and it was something that Altman would continue throughout uh, his entire career. You know? Yeah, I mean, there's some overt references to Hollywood in Brewster McLeod, uh, particularly with the Wizard of Oz reference. You've got Margaret Hamilton, but you also get uh, Jennifer Salt at the end of the movie dressed up as Toto, yeah. holding, holding, uh, dressed up as Dorothy, holding Toto at yeah. the end. Yeah. And, and obviously saying, was everything you watched real? Was it all a dream? Have you just woken up? I, you, know, like you were there and you were there and you were there. It's that kind of Wizard of Oz thing again. Exactly. Which you see in, in a lot of movies. And obviously you come back for a more overt satire on Hollywood with the player in the early 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, really interesting, uh, interesting movie. It's less coherent than MASH. I think it, it takes, the, takes the, the, like, the overlapping dialogue, the, 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 the sound coming from different areas, uh, you know, some of its on-set sounds, some of its over, voiceovers. It has all those traits that it shares with MASH, but it, has, it doesn't have as much coherency, I guess, uh, as MASH, mainly because it... it you're not quite sure what it's satirizing. It's satirizing America yeah, yeah. rather than just the war yeah. or, you know, something specific. But in, in a very broad sense, and it may not, it's not quite got the focus of MASH, but uh, that's what I like about mm. it. You know, I, I like the fact that it's very freewheeling and uh, and I love the fact that it's not all explained to you and you, you don't know who Sally Cal- uh, Sally uh, Kellerman is, but uh, uh, you don't necessarily know who Bud Court is, who Brewster is either by the end of the film. Um is he even real? Mm. You know, he he jumps back in time to the to the, um, the I guess the dawning of America, the early early history of America, with his next film, where Snow Western, or an anti Snow Western, or a Western anti I don't know. It's definitely not your typical Western um, in many ways. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, yeah, uh, widely regarded as a ten out of ten movie. Um, it's one of the canon of Hollywood, I guess. Now. And rightly so. One of our very first podcasts um, for Cine Lit was on the subject of acid westerns. And McCabe and Mrs. Miller was made right in the middle of that era when the acid western was at its peak. And it's it's probably not an acid western, but it's not far removed. It's a cousin to them. Uh, it's got Leonard Cohen soundtrack. Uh, based on songs from from his most recent album, it's got this whole interesting idea that the, the the set of the film was actually being built while the film played out, and part of the plot mm. is that this town is being constructed, and and I, I think am I right in saying they they went to the point where um, uh, they act, the, they the 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 people who were sort of credited as crewmen as carpenters and so on in the movie. Were, were were done up in costume so that they could actually work while Altman was filming, and it made sense as part of the plot. So wow. they're they're all put in period costume. No, so they're they're on set doing their job, you know, building the set, and um, and he makes it part of the narrative. 
But we've, we've we've got star power there as well. I mean, the thing with Mash is that he he made stars out of out of Sutherland and Elliot Gould, mm-hmm. who've been knocking around for a few years. But this is the film that sort of launched them, you know. Um, here we've got established star power. We've got um, Warren Beatty. We've got Julie Christie. So, uh, but he's he's working with with big names here, and perhaps for the for the first time in his career on a major project. It's interesting that he doesn't seem to be phased by that. He doesn't seem to be. He doesn't seem to treat the big stars any differently to how he treats his other. They are just an ensemble of cast that you're, he's brought you're, together. You're right, and I think they respond to that yeah. as well. And I think people throughout Altman's career responded to that, which is I think that's how a director becomes one of these directors that actors love to work with. If if they see working with that director as a bit of a challenge and a bit of a chance to get down and dirty mm. and you're not going to be fawned over and you're not going to have the director sort of um, uh, bowing and scraping and answering uh, um, to your every whim, you know. And sometimes actors, there are certain actors who would hate that, but I think there's a certain breed of actor that really responds to that and respects it. Mm. Did Beatty respect that? Maybe not, I, I, but I think that I think that becomes... He, Altman manages to turn that into part of what the character is, mm. I think. I think BT didn't respect it and probably never did with any any director. But I think Altman probably knew that going in and was able to sort of make that part of the personality of McCabe. Yeah, no, it definitely, definitely doesn't feel like it's a, it's a BT thing uh, to, to, to abandon that kind of like Hollywood lifestyle to... To get down and dirty in the trenches with the rest. I'm, I'm sure, but Altman manages, manages to make it look yeah. that way yeah. in the finished film, I think. Talking about threads that run through Altman's films, and you've identified already the, the sort of troubled male loner in his films. And I think Altman tells a single story across, across three movies. And it starts with McCabe and Mrs. Miller. All three films start with a troubled male loner stumbling out of the wilderness, mumbling and incoherent and heading, not necessarily heading for the place where he ends up, um, but heading for somewhere, just trying to find himself and find his way through life getting involved in the adventure of whatever film it is we're seeing and then sort of departing at the end of the film into their into their next adventure. And I think this starts with McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And I think it runs through to Quintet in 1979. And then um, the, the critic Tom Milne for, from the Monthly Film Bulletin said about the character Essex in Quintet, played by Paul Newman, that when he, when he departs Quintet and heads off into a blizzard at, at the end of that film, again, another snowbound film, so there's, there's a connection with McCabe and Mrs Miller. It, they're both in sort of snowy settings, you know. But uh, Paul Newman's character sort of wanders away, having experienced the, the drama of the, the science fiction movie Quintet, all set in this post-apocalyptic wintry wilderness and Tom Milne said that uh, he's he's clearly heading for another destination. He's looking for the perfect world. He's looking for the perfect place. Is the place that he's looking for Sweet Haven from Altman's later film from the following year? Um, 
based on the character Popeye. And again, Robin Williams comes rowing into Sweet Haven, mumbling, chuntering to himself. Nobody can understand him. Um, he comes out of nowhere. He doesn't know what his destination is. And um, again, goes through um, this this sort of weird on-land adventure once once he arrives. And, you know, are, are those three films, in, in the way that Paul Schrader often put elements of himself into, into characters in different movies. They're not the same character. He's not telling a continuing story about one man, but there are trace elements there of, of, of that, as though it is one character. And I think that's the case here for McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Quintet and Popeye. Well, let me, let me tackle your points one by one, shall we? Mumbling characters appear in... Every Robert Altman <laughs> movie. It's literally a trademark of his work that you get incoherent dialogue, overlapping dialogue, dialogue that you can't quite hear what's going on. That is a trait, all of his films. So to single out those three uh, as, as being unique in that respect, I, I don't think it's right. I think they're all... They're, Popeye in itself, the character, way back in the cartoons, has that mumbling gimmick as part of his, the little asides that he makes. So I don't think that's not necessary. I think the one thing that does connect these, maybe not the third one, but definitely connects McCabe and Mrs. Miller to Quintet is the seriousness of them. Yeah. Most of Altman's work has satire, has comedy, has elements of mirth about it that allows him to express probably ser- more serious matters and issues and tones than you would normally have a chance to. McCabe and Mr. Miller is fairly straightly played. Quintet is definitely straightly played. You know, it's almost pole-faced yeah, in yeah. its straightness. Now, I, 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 think, I think all of Altman's films have some element of bleakness to them. But I think the, you're right, in these, these two films, are, they're about bleak. You know, there's, there's nothing else. But I would argue that Popeye's like that as well. But Popeye has the, the, it has the, the comedy medicine to make the pill go down strong, you know, easier. It has the mirth, it has the slapstick, it has elements like that to allow the message to go down, whereas Quintet is a slog to get through. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, McCabe and Mrs. Miller isn't so yeah. much a slog, but it's definitely very serious in, in the way that it pitches yeah. itself. Well, as I, as I say, McCabe and Mrs. Miller was uh, was sort of made in the year of the Acid Western, 1971. And Quintet, happily, coincidentally, was made in the same year as uh, Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. And it's almost Hollywood's version of Stalker. Yeah. It really is that that bleak and, and focused and... and um, and I, I think Newman's superb in it. And uh, it's a film that a lot of people find a real challenge. And I think it's supposed to be. Yeah, I, I must admit, I didn't like it. I, I find Tarkovsky a challenge as well. Yeah. So I'm probably not the best to enjoy this one as well. But I just found it like, it's a lot It's like a lot of science fiction made by auteurs who don't do that much science fiction. You always feel like they're approaching the genre like, oh, I can do that better. I can tell a better story than those science fiction movie film people and a man who tends and they, and they make it and the basis of the story is the most basic of sci-fi stories 
and they just put on lots of low long shots yeah. as, people as, sta- as, if, as if it's never been done before. Uh, yeah exactly yeah. and they, it's the emperor's new clothes yeah. all over again and it's like and they don't realize because they're not as immersed in the genre of sci-fi so know that this film's like that out there and i've done it better and you're not reinventing the wheel you are not some sort of genius that's come to the genre and gone oh my goodness i can i can re- completely reinvent this Try making a decent science fiction film first and foremost, <laughs> then try and reinvent the wheel. Uh, that would be my advice to the well-respected director Robert Ullman. Yeah, I, I think I, I think I like Quintet in that it, it sort of connects to Brewster McLeod as well for me, in in the sense that I that it doesn't explain itself. It throws you into this world and it leaves you to try and work it out. And at the end of the film, you realise that much as much as though you might have enjoyed Brewster McLeod, you've not worked any of it out. And I think the same is true for Quintet. And I'm not sure you're supposed to work it out. I think that that might be the point of both of those films, but I'm not sure. I think it's, it's definitely, uh, if you're talking bleak, it's definitely a bleak storyline with yeah. no hope. <laughs> there's no hope in this movie at all. And but also, there's no access point for the audience. There's no in character. For well, that. I I agree, but I think that's Altman's intention. Possibly, I, I think, I, and I think it it's it d- depending on the individual viewer. I think it works, you know. I, th- I think, or it can work. But I'd I'd say that's true of Popeye as well. Yeah, yeah, uh, pr- probably <laughs> as well. But for me, they both completely miss the mark. For me. Okay, yeah. Well, I, I, you know, Altman can be divisive like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I found Quintet, it's a, it's a snowbound, uh, isolated world, and it's cold and uninviting, and the characters are cold and uninviting. So it's like, it just didn't engage me. Yeah. So, I mean, if I'm connecting that and McCabe and Mrs. Miller, what, what's your what's your take on, on the earlier film? I think the McCabe and Mrs. Miller, maybe, maybe it's because it's a more recognisable world. And I think you are playing out the tropes of a Western, you know, a gunslinger wanting to turn his back on his back, alleged, possible, possible gunslinger yeah. wanting to turn his, his back on, on a previous life and people come hunting him down and he's forced into a confrontation. Yeah. That's like the, the plot of 7,000 Westerns, all made between 1950 and 1960, you know. It is, but as I say, this is the era of the acid Western. <laughs> yeah. And Altman sort of almost independently... Or in in doing his own thing with McCabe and Mrs Miller, he's 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 sort of echoing what's going on elsewhere in in the in the early seventies revisionist western of of, of the times. Yeah, you know, he's sort of doing his own version of that, and you and you sense he's doing that without having seen El Topo or um, uh, Zachariah or any of those films. No, definitely. I mean, there's there's, there's not so much of the. Um, hallucinatory imagery in this movie it's more about it's almost like it's almost like a more realistic western yeah in the sense of like there's no her- heroism heroism doesn't enter into this world of the western he's not a hero she's not a hero he's he's a, a, a manipulative businessman trying to get ahead yeah and other businessmen have come in to take his place you know basically and she runs a brothel you know that that's they are not characters to be idolised in no, no. Altman's, or, or equally, they're not characters to be despised either. Yeah. They are they are just characters. They are people living in their world, trying their best to make their way in the world. Yeah. Um, let's have a little talk about Elliot Gould, shall we? Because yeah. Elliot Gould yeah. looms large in this period. He's in MASH. 
He returns for the long goodbye. He crops up in Nashville. He's in California Split as well, which is just after Long Goodbye. So you get him appearing in a bunch of different roles and establishing himself as a star. Yeah, well, Altman made him a star in MASH, I think. And uh, and then in that early 70s period, I think he, he, he became a big, big Hollywood star. And I, I, I think... He, he never forgot Altman and always would come back for him, even to the point of point where he just does a, a little walk on cameo in, in Nashville mm-hmm. in a great scene, you know, but uh, playing himself even in that. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, but he had to, I mean, he, he, it's not a case of like Robert Altman just getting California split. He wasn't the first choice. No, no. And uh, Robert Altman wanted somebody else. And it was the writer and Elliot Gould getting together to try and convince Robert Altman <laughs> that he was right for the role. And you'd think, well, surely Robert Altman knows by now what Elliot Gould can do, but not even that case. And he comes in and, and puts on a blistering performance in California yeah, Square. Yeah. Um, but he's a perfect yeah. depiction of that uh, flawed male character that Altman comes back to. Yeah, yeah. And, and particularly in these, these two movies, The Long Goodbye uh, an adaptation of Raymond Chandler book um, yeah. by Lee Brackett um, and uh, modernising it to the 1970s. Yeah, and which upset a lot of people at the time. Yeah. There were a lot of purists or people who thought they were purists who just reacted so strongly against that depiction of that character. What do you think? What would you think was the the, the pro- their problem with it? It's, it's weird because I, I I think your your traditional film noir hero or your your sort of leading detective figure, as played by Humphrey Bogart and so many others, is is usually a, a, a bit of a bum. You know, they are usually a bit of a dishevelled, downtrodden loser. You know, um, I I think maybe people had slightly distorted that picture in their minds and thought of the likes of Bogart as being sort of heroic. Figures and and I think all Altman does again is just like he did in McCabe and Mrs Miller. He just he just plays it as real. He shows it as real and gets Elliot Gould to play it as you know just just play a guy living your life. You know going going to the store and what have you. Again, it's a question of he, Altman taking that step towards ultra realism rather than movie realism that upset people that like movie realism. They they can accept Humphrey Bogart playing a bit of a loser detective who doesn't get the girl at the end sort of thing, as long as he looks fairly cool and and he looks good in black and white, you know. And I think you know having the story set in at the time it was filmed and uh, having Gould slightly more sort of downtrodden and dishevelled just sort of emphasised that fact to people and people didn't respond to it. Mm. It's kind of weird because it's, it's, it's much more in line with uh, the paperback boom of detective fiction of the 1950s where characters are a bit more sleazy, they are a bit more downtrodden, they are a bit more living in the real world. Yeah, sort, kind of, of, sort of Mickey Spillane type. Yeah, world, yeah, those, yeah. Kind of, those kind of characters are a bit more real than the hyper-real characters of, of Bogart and things like that. I think one of the, one of the interesting way that he approaches structure the Long Goodbye. A lot of those detective stories of the 1950s are about the detective discovering clues, building a picture of what's gone on, and then unveiling the, the killer, the murderer, the, the, the device, the plot, whatever, at the end. Whereas this is much more shambolic in the way it builds its picture. And it's almost like, instead of building a case, it's like having most of the jigsaw 
that's covering the real picture and he's slowly just pulling the pieces away and unveiling uh, revealing the picture yeah in, in almost like he's not even detecting as such in this movie he's just turning up at places and getting a piece of information it's like oh we're okay and then i pulls that pulls that little piece away and then it slowly starts to unveil and it's like maybe they just think he wasn't working hard enough mm. to, to be that detective he's not he's not done anything special it's like well most detectives don't do anything special they just do the dragnet of turning up interviewing someone getting a bit of piece of information and moving on yeah, there's no yeah. great sherlock holmes style yeah. leaps of, of deduction in, in, involved in this storyline yeah. of course we've got columbo with the peter falk on tv around this time as well and and you know not not a million miles removed i think from no. elliot gould here and um in terms of comparing gould to your classic film noir detectives of the 40s which one has had the longer lasting influence because i think the makers of the big lebowski and inherent vice have not taken their tip from uh, Mr. Bogart, have they? No. I think they've looked very, very long and hard at Elliot Gould and Robert Altman. Yeah, and, and Gould's fantastic. I mean, he's like, there's there's always a danger with those kind of like characters where the dialogue is less important. The dialogue's there and it's been written, but half of it is mumbling to himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other half is like, it's thrown away from the camera where you can't even hear what's going on by the side. So it's, it's, it's more about the charisma he exudes on screen. Um, and, and Gould just nails it. Yeah. And then arguably tops that in California Split. Yeah, yeah. I think his California Split performance is, it's frankly exhausting watching him on screen. Because from, from, from one character who's like shambolic, lazy, a bum, is kind of just like ambling through the movie. And then you move on to California Split, which is like the next couple of years later. Um, and he, yeah, the following, following year. Following, yeah, following yeah. year. And he's basically a whirlwind of energy. Yeah. Mm. And, you, and it's almost like if he stops talking, he's going to explode. He's got to keep talking. And, it's like, and not in a manic kind of New York kind of way either. Yeah. It's not like a Joe Pesci kind of character where he's like nervous energy. There's just a natural energy to his performance mm. in this, which couldn't be further away from, from, from Marlowe in, in Longer Pie. Sure. And I think that that's, that's indicative of a great actor-director relationship, you know, whether, whether or not Gold was the first choice in either of these films, you know. Um, I, I think the you know Altman and Gould working together is is, and you throw in throw in mash to that as well, and and you know you, you it's it's a director allowing an actor to show his range, mm -hmm. and the act the actor responding to that. I, I read I read a, a quote from George Siegel about this movie, and it, it was actually a quote to the writer, and there was a writer doing. He says George came to me one day and says. I don't know what to do with this guy. He's like a frigging octopus. He's like, his arms are moving all over the place. I can't get a hand. I'm trying to, he says, don't try and out-ax him. Just do your own thing and it'll be a natural balance. And he does. And, yeah, he, and yeah. he's a nice balance for those yeah. two characters. You know? Oh, yeah. There's one they're... character that's going to change his life and it ain't Elliot Gould. That's <laughs> all I'm going to say. But yeah, a really authentic gambling movie. You don't see that many gambling movies that are done as authentic yeah, as this. Again, it's real. It's yeah, real. Yeah, you yeah. depict that world of like these small clubs where people are playing poker and and having that little hot streak that he has. And him just saying, like, I didn't feel any different when I had the hot streak. And it's just like his eyes are open to the to the world of gambling, but not in a sort of like big heroic Hollywood moment. Yeah, yeah. It's just a, like a, a depressing realization yeah. of his life at that point. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I talked then about Altman allowing an actor to show his range. I think it allows Altman to show his range as well, because this is a director where we've already talked about Mash and Brewster McLeod and these sort of satirical, wild comedies, you know. Um, they're, they're not set in a recognisable real world, are they? You know, they could have been, you could have told either of those mm -hmm. stories in a very realistic way. Um, he didn't do. He, he tells them in a sort of larger than life way. But as we've discussed in the past couple of movies, he can, he can then do that ultra realism and then move away from that again and go back to the sort of fantastic or the broad and the satirical, you know, mm. and, um, and, Altman's able to sort of dance through all of this, and uh, and he's as a director, he's got the range of an, of a good actor. Mm, no, absolutely, and that that's shown throughout his work. We get we get now to, to arguably his masterpiece, uh, a film that's being reissued into British cinemas uh, imminently in the next two, yeah, next few months, next few weeks. Um, Nashville. We spoke on our, our episode about the Oscars of nineteen seventy six about how it was surprising that none of those films really reflected the uh, bicentenary. And we talked about Rocky being the closest that came to it, and it was a feel-good, upbeat, happy version of, of 200 years of American history. Nashville, which was made the year before, and was up for Oscars the year before, is kind of the complete opposite of that. It's not the happy, feel-good lap of honour, the lap of victory, is it? It's, it's, it's a stark... Fascinating but stark depiction of where America is. Yeah, it's a film. It's years a film after. about America, but not the film that America wanted. Yeah, not at all. Um, but what a film! What a film! It's the first time I'd seen it ever, and it absolutely blew my socks off. Yeah, Con contender for Altman's best film. Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've got my favourite, but Nashville is in in the pot you know it's it's so good it's got to, i think altman claimed it had um 24 major speaking roles in it so there's there's your on, uh, ensemble straight away you know so he's building on the worlds of things like mash there you mm -hmm. know mash had a lot of characters in but nashville sort of expands that and says yeah let's let's see if we can do this let's see if we can do this broad canvas um it's, it's you you can't really describe you you know you you might think oh is is the film a microcosm of of America and yes it is but the word microcosm doesn't fit this because the world of Nashville is quite expansive in itself you know and I think Altman shows that here if this is a microcosm of America it's it's a big microcosm and you can't have such a thing so uh, um, but he manages to pull that off he has major speaking roles we are always conscious of who and where every character is and what they're doing. It's brilliantly marshaled. Mm. Um, there are half a dozen fantastic performances. Well, you know, Hen Henry Gibson, let's start with, who's, who's the, the, the pint-sized just core of this film. Yeah, I mean he he he's fantastic. The right? king the king of Nashville. Yeah, it's yeah. And, and it's an, it's 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 not right to say that he's a central character because he isn't, uh, and it is much more of a. But then nobody is. Nobody really. is. No, I say no. nobody is. But he is one of the linchpins of the of the of this film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I I'd say you know he 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 sort of bestrides the film like 
Again, you can't use the word colossus because he's 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 about five foot something. But uh, but yeah, he's, he's he 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 does come across as colossal though in terms of his 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 character's sort of power within the world of Nashville and within the world of country music. You know, Gibson's playing this um, sort of huge um, country music star, you know, and a, a very orthodox star. You know, there's no new country or alt country here, you know, although Altman does address that at other points in the film. You know, the film seems to be a little bit about the cusp of country music and the changing styles within it and traditional versus new. Um, but um, here we've got this character who's representing those very orthodox traditional country values. And um, and the, 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 the cast um, actually contributed a lot of their own songs, didn't they? And a lot they of did, their yeah, own yeah. lyrics to this. And uh, Gibson must have had a great time writing sort of parody of, of sort of family values and American values style country music. Because you can tell the character believes every single word that he's singing. And you just know that somewhere within there, Henry Gibson doesn't believe a word of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, I mean, a lot of that, I mean, he's, he's starting just nails it was singing the song about 200 years of american history and you know, that kind of stuff. and it, and it, it you don't you know he doesn't believe a word he's saying <laughs> um but it's fascinating it's fascinating that kind of depiction of country music um I, I don't know too much about country music but i know a little bit and he, he feels authentic as that as that kind of like the the guy who's been at the top for many years, yeah, uh, you know, master of the Grand Old Opry, you know, he's 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 the guy, yeah. And then you get sort of like Ronnie Blackley coming in, uh, who played the mummy in Nightmare on Elm Street for yeah. for horror fans there. But she she's again she's a singer, she is a, a musician, yeah. So she worked on Nashville prior to being cast in Nashville, mm. and she's cast as a sort of like um, uh, Bobby Gentry style uh, singer with a very delicate emotional state and she's fantastic in this movie yeah i mean she got nominated for, for this performance yeah. deservedly so and um yeah is 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 just brilliant i mean famously the nashville community the real the real population of uh, of um the the town and 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 the country music scene hated Altman's film, and I think they they professed to have hated it because he got details wrong and he got the the music wasn't to mm. their liking. I think they actually hated it because it was it was so close to the truth. Yeah, it definitely shone that mirror a bit too a bit too uncomfortably towards. And, and interestingly, the the modern day Nashville community loves the film. Yeah. I liken this before before we started recording today. I, I, I liken this to like the film version of the great American novel, yeah, where the film builds and builds, and you know that this is this time frame of it's five days before this political rally that's happening, uh, and you and you're building towards that, but you don't really know why it's building towards that at all really until you get to the very near the end and it slowly just layers characters and layers the plot layers the storyline very patiently over its two and a half two hours 40 minute runtime. and you get an hour and a half in and you just you don't know where it's going but you just feel like you're you've, you've eaten a hearty meal or you know you're you're knee deep in a thousand page novel you know and and you bought and sold into it there it's very rich dense Full of layered characters. Uh, even and we talked about speaking roles. Even the non-speaking roles are important. Yeah, You've got yeah. Jeff Goldblum yeah. 
riding around like the, the vision of the future. Yeah, doing very, very bad magic tricks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but on that bike, you know, the yeah, symbolism yeah. of it, uh, he's riding a three-wheel bike a la uh, Dennis Hopper in Easy Rider. So why he's even mentioned that. And he he is the oncoming storm of of change. In Absolutely. Some ways, you know. I mean, in in those terms as well, we also get Keith Carradine and uh, the the country trio that he's part of. Mm. They're sort of taking a line from the birds and Grand Parsons and and um, the, the 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 new rock elite that has sort of adopted country in the early seventies. And here's this this sort of this trio that that. They're, they're playing country music, but it's not necessarily what Nashville would recognize as country. But you watch that film now, and we've, we've had decades of, uh, you know, acts like Ryan Adams and Wilco and so on and Bright Eyes. And we, from our 2021 perspective, we've got a fresh idea about what country music is. And this seems to be the birth of all that, you know. And um, Caradine again wrote his own songs for the film, and he wrote a song called "I'm Easy," which is used in what for me is the film's best scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, his character's horrible. He mm. should be likable. You you want to like this guy. He looks really cool. He's in this trio. They're cool. They're cooler than they're a lot cooler than Henry Gibson. You know, mm. so you want to sort of root for them. You want the story to be these guys come in and they show Nashville that they're the future and country music's dead and we're what's coming next. It doesn't work like that because his character is awful Mm. and he's awful to women particularly Mm. and he sleeps around and he he doesn't honour women and he he, he lies to them. And we get to the point where he, he plays this song in a club called I'm Easy, which he wrote himself and which won the Oscar that year as best song. Deservedly so, it's brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliantly performed. And we've seen him have liaisons with four different women at this point, and they all happen to be in the club. Now, most other directors, that, that would seem forced. Altman makes it look like the most natural thing in the world that they're all there mm-hmm. because he shows us why they're all there. He sort of explains to us one by one, but without layering it on with a trowel, there's a reason for all those women to be in that club at that time mm. uh, among this, this sort of mass audience. And then so Caradine's up there playing the song and each of the women in turn, and we see the reactions on their faces. And again, there's no dialogue necessary. They all think that the song is being sung to them. And it isn't. Mm. So it's it's a great scene. It's the core scene in the film, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's a fantastic sequence. Um We've not really talked about the political aspects of this movie as, as such, and it, the core of it is all in politics, isn't it? Yeah. You have this uh, presidential hopeful running for the uh, replacement party uh, yeah. in, 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 in Nashville. Yeah, well, Altman, in, during the 1988 uh, American election campaign, he made an 11-part TV series called Tanner 88, And this was a sort of docudrama type thing where they went out on the actual real campaign trail and he had Michael Murphy, regular in his films, Mm -hmm. playing a political um, presidential candidate called Tanner, who was fictionally running for, for president, but alongside the real candidate. So they're sort of filming these fake scenes of him doing rallies and interviews and so on. And it's being intercut with with the actual campaign trail. 
And his, Tanner 88 is a great TV masterpiece, but the roots of it are in the, um, the Hal Philip Walker, the replacement party mm. campaign right here in Nashville. I mean, it's fascinating that you have this clear image of who Hal Phillips is. And you never see him. No, no you never see no. him in the maze. It's a voice in the in the darkness in the wilderness. Yeah, and again, it's, it's people movie. wearing button badges and yeah. and tax, taxi driver did much the same with its political yeah. campaign with the Palatine mm-hmm. the following year. You know, and uh, I wonder if Scorsese sort of took a few tips from Nashville there. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, you know, we we do we do see Palatine in, in Taxi Driver, but the the main thrust of the campaign is is all about these posters and buttons and badges and things and uh, announcements and so on. Nashville's so incisive on that in that we don't even need to see the candidate to, to get a sense of his power. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also like you have a lot of characters that don't have control over their destinies in this movie and nothing says that than a politician yeah. who has power over most people's destinies, you know, uh, as, as, an, as a symbol. So I think having that character running through the movie, like, uh, you know, all the way through from the very start to the very end yeah. is, yeah... And the idea with this character and with the whole campaign was Altman Altman wanted to have written into the script of Nashville a political candidate who said all the things that he himself and the writers and you know anyone he asked involved in film he sort of said you know what if if you wanted a politician to tell the truth and to sort of say things that you wanted to hear what would they be and that's how the the whole campaign was written and even even then even though you see you know the idea is that this guy is saying all the right things because it maybe because it's a Robert Altman film or because we are sort of wary of politics you, you still, or, or, or because of even the, the the way in which this message is being delivered, and possibly you're, you're right, Adam, in the fact that we never even see this guy, we're suspicious. Mm. Even though the message seems to be very positive, we we are, are wary of it. Yeah, we have that. We you don't have believe that, it. You have that whole sequence where the woman's talking about John F. Kennedy and about how you know he, we, we voted him in in Nashville, you know, and and, and basically all mainly talking about the Kennedy brothers and the death yeah, of democracy yeah, in yeah. America, the death of that kind of the the, the idea of change through politics. Um, and obviously, in light of Nixon thing, which was a few years earlier, you have this. Fabric of the world that's happening at the moment, where you can't trust politicians. You know you can't trust politicians, and their words mean nothing. They could say all the right things, but you don't believe them, and that really comes across in this movie. People saying things that they that they you don't really believe. Yeah. One of the film that links this directly is obviously Secret Honor, which yeah. we talked about briefly before we got going, and uh, which is an, a film adaptation of a play. One man play. Um, yeah. For the- now this this follows Altman having done adaptations of the plays. Uh, Come back to the five and dime, dime. Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, and Streamers. Mm-hmm. So he he was filming these plays and doing them in a stark and and spare a, a fashion as he possibly could. And he, he finally reduced it to the point where he filmed a one-man show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's filmed by, I think he was a lecturer at University of Atlanta at the time. So a lot of this people working on the crew were students. Yeah. You had, he must have had total faith 
in the performance because yeah, which is the Philip Baker Hall, Philip Baker yeah, Hall, yeah. and because there's nowhere to hide when you're doing that, really. No, you, know, no. you, you have to. And we, I, I'm watching it, and ten minutes in, I'm thinking, this is awful. You've got like TV music of the top, and like dated TV yeah, music yeah. as well. It's proper 1970s, like like an episode of Columbo. I love Columbo, but it's that opening credits where the music's playing and the the murderer's preparing um, his 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 murder. And you've got a similar thing here with Richard Nixon coming in. You know, he's got the ha- he's got a handgun on his desk. He's got a bottle of scotch and a bunch of recording equipment. It's like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> and uh, we weren't we weren't um, phased. We weren't disappointed at all. No, no. Now, um, so um, do you want to talk a bit about what you know? It, it's not like a sort of biography of Richard Nixon. It's about one specific sort of. Um, portion of his, his his life and one specific sort of um few minutes or hour or couple of hours in yeah i mean he's, t- he's talking about he's basically dictating his memoirs yeah and it's just i mean a lot has been talked about richard nixon and, and explored in cinema left right and center. it almost feels like such a well-trod uh topic now to I mean, even in the last 10 years or so we've had two or three Nick, richard nixon high profile richard nixon films um and i think going back to that time may not be as um, attractive now. Uh, now we've had Trump. <laughs> I think we'll be. Yeah, yeah. I think people will be making Trump films in, in the next 10, 15 years. Or Very so, likely, um, with astonishing central performances <laughs> as well. Yeah. Now, what what we don't get here is a Richard Nixon impersonation. No. It's a brilliant performance by Philip Baker Hall, but he does he doesn't particularly. There's a vague resemblance to Nixon, but not, you know, they've not gone out of their way. There's no makeup or anything, you know, and the the voice isn't, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that can impersonate Nixon and a lot who can impersonate Donald Trump. And it'll be interesting to see if there are any sort of um, dramatizations of the Donald Trump years and how people play that character. You know, will will they go for the sort of impersonation or will they go for a characterization? And Philip Baker Hall just comes on and gives a knockout performance without without taking steps to, to make it look or sound like a Nixon impersonation. I think he does enough with it. I think what he does, he utilizes the voice, the Nixon voice, to punctuate. Yeah. So yeah, he's yeah. doing the performance. And then at certain moments you think, oh, that's Nixon. Just as a just reminder. A, just yeah. as a reminder, yeah. but also just to emphasise a point. It's usually where he's losing his temper yeah. and he's losing his mind and he's going a bit like slightly nuts. So the point's where we want him to sound <laughs> yeah, like Richard yeah, exactly. Nixon, he does. He goes yeah. that, yeah, and then he comes back to a more realistic portrayal. But it's it's a magnetic film in a sense. I mean, I I, I love those kind of films which are based on theatre, as we said. Um, and I think with this, he... You don't care that it's not particularly cinematic because he's all the cinema you're ever going to need in a 90-minute movie. He He's magnetic performance. Um, but, yeah, as we said, he comes back to politics all the way through his career. I mean, we obviously, the Tanner stuff thing uh, and Nashville, but all rooted in Nashville, I guess. Yeah, yeah, possibly. So. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I mean, and the ultimate then is is Tanner eighty eight, where he's actually involved in in the real life campaign, you know, but doing it as a fiction. Yeah. Um, uh, I think he revisited Tanner, didn't he? Yes, he did. There was a, yeah. a, a series um, two thousand and four, I think. Yeah, that's a, yeah. Um, where they sort of look back on the eighty eight campaign. So uh, again, that's a four part show again, directed by Altman. Yeah, yeah. 
Should we talk about his uh, psychotic women? Yes, that's another trait yeah. of his, of his yeah. movies that yeah. um, that comes through. I mean, I, it's an area that I'm not as familiar with. I'll be honest. I had m- lots of plans to see Three Women uh, images, and I just got overwhelmed by the amount of Altman I hadn't seen. Yeah. That I ended up watching twelve films, and none of them were those two films. But it's a definite strand to his movies. Yes, it is. Um, I think the, the the trilogy really for me is. Um, a film that precedes MASH, actually. It was made the year before MASH. Um, that Cold Day in the Park with Sandy Dennis. That was made in 1969. Images was made in Ireland in 1972 with uh, Susanna York. And then Three Women, which is made with um, uh, Janice Rule, Sissy Spacek and um, Shelley Duval, Altman's, Altman's regular. Mm-hmm. Three Women is very sort of Bergman-esque, Yet another Altman film where no answers are given to you whatsoever. The basic idea of it is it's a film about two women, basically, despite the title. Uh, Janice Rule, again, plays a sort of muse-like character, not dissimilar to Sally Kellerman in Brewster McCloud. She sort of flits in and out of the action, almost representing a sort of Earth Mother type figure, heavily pregnant and keeping an eye on what's going on in the world around her and the situation we're watching in the film. I don't think she gets any dialogue, although it's, a, it's difficult to say, actually, because you sometimes you don't know who's talking. But the two central women in the film are played by Sissy Spacek and Shelley Duval. Now, these are two actors who look... You, you know Sissy Spacek, you know Shelley Duval. You know that they look and always have looked completely different. Well, this film goes where films like Persona and Performance had gone before. It's about not only um, identity theft, but identity theft in that sort of fantastical way that you'd seen in those earlier films. This isn't single white female where someone is setting out to impersonate somebody else. This is much more mystical. And the first time you see Sissy Spacek sitting on her own in the movie... You sort of look twice and you go, oh, I know Shelley Duval's in this film. Is is that her? Mm. It's it's almost impossible. What I, I I can't figure out quite what they've done or whether they've made Sissy up in a particular way or what. Or... I don't know. I mean, as much as you say that, I always I, maybe it's because subconsciously I knew about this movie, but I always had them as similar, relatively similar looking, not bang on twins, but. Yeah. In the in the same well, ballpark of, of I can I can I can see what you mean there, Adam. But when you watch three women and you see them in a lot of scenes together, mm. they look completely different. Yeah, yeah. And yet you see Sissy in isolation, and part of your brain sort of plays a bit of a trick on you. No, oh, is that Shelley Duval? You know, mm. and I I don't know whether that is just your brain playing tricks or if something has been done somewhere to manipulate that image. Now, they probably do that, you know, through CGI or something, but I, I, I just don't know what, what they've done. And it's, they don't bring attention to it either. It's, it's just there. It, it, it might not even be noticed by some viewers. The idea is that um, Shelley Duval is working in this um, weird... Apparently, this was a real place. It's some weird sort of rehabilitation place for old-age pensioners 
where they sort of they 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 their residence there, but they've got like a swimming pool and a spa, and they go down and exercise for ten minutes every day, whatever they can manage. And they've got this team of young female assistants who sort of help them and hold them up in the pool and things like that, and give them massages and stuff. Um, and uh, Shelley Duval's character works at this place and Sissy Spacek turns up again turns up out of nowhere so it's another drifting character is she even real we we don't know is Janice Rule real we don't know we're, we're pretty sure that Shelley is and Sissy Spacek sets out to take over Shelley Duval's life but not in a sort of sinister horror movie type way but in something that's much more sort of mystical, much more inexplicable, really. Um, very, very, very fantasy sort of orientated. And these three characters all sort of drift around each other through the film. And there's all kinds of symbols. There's these weird paintings on the walls and the, the bottom of a swimming pool in this sort of ranch bar sort of thing, which is a bit of a focus for the film. Um, there are suggestions that Janice Rule's husband has been murdered by one or two or possibly all three of the women. Um, there's a very enigmatic final scene um, where you're not sure who's who and who's speaking. There's a voiceover, but you're not sure whose voice it is. And again, it may be that they've layered two or three of the voices over each other. Don't ask me to say what the plot is. <laughs> um, it's it's yeah, it's so Bergman-esque and so freaky. And it was the third film of this little trilogy that Altman had done, starting with the, That Cold Day in the Park, which um, has Sandy Dennis as this very lonely, isolated woman living in an apartment, uh, she befriends this young male character who doesn't speak for the first half of the movie, and we we and you 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 gradually sort of think is this being drawn as a sort of affectation or what? And then you conclude, oh, he he must be a mute character, and then he does speak unexpectedly, and all of your expectations go out the window, and um, and they they have this strange sort of relationship. And she just can't really relate to to other human beings at all, though. And um, yeah, it 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 doesn't end well. <laughs> um, it ends horribly, in fact. And um, and then on to images, which was shot in Ireland in the early seventies. And this is another weird one where Susanna York is playing an author of children's books, and Susanna York had actually just written a children's book herself, which is the book in the film. So you've already got that thing going on. Is this the actress? Is this the character? She's living in this isolated cottage in Ireland. She may be living there on her own. She may be living there with other people. There are, there's another female character played by the actress Sir Catherine Harrison. And her character's called Susanna. And Susanna York's character is called Catherine. All the male characters, including René Aubergenoir is back, have all got each other's names as well. So the, the real names of the actors are used for the characters, but they all swap. So there's all this identity shifting going on. And you're never quite sure whether Susanna York is seeing these people or if they're really there. And things seem to be moving around the house. Locations change. All kinds of things sort of shift and merge into one another. 
Um, again, it's 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 almost completely plotless, and is is a picture in ultimately it's a picture of a woman whose 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 mind is just fragmenting and breaking up. Was this was this a um, a scripted movie, or was it one of the ones that Robert Altman decided to do? Um, improvisationally, because it's it's credited as being written by Robert Altman and Susanna York. Yeah, yeah. Which makes me feel it's, like they got in a house and went, right, yeah. let's do this. Uh, what are we yeah. going to do? There, uh, there, there is there is an official script credit. You're right, but I, there, I, I, I gather there's a strong element of improv there. Yeah, yeah. The, we're in the world of films like Repulsion. I was about to say it sounds very much yeah, like yeah. Repulsion. Um, yeah, and you know it's a. It, it's all and out of America as well. It's filmed in Ireland. It's a it's a British movie, British um, production, and um, very very much in the tone of lots of British cinema of that time. Um, well, again, it's left it's left up to you to decide what's happening. So there are so many Altman films like this, you know, from Brewster McLeod and that that cold day in the park onwards. You know, often you don't get explanations. You, you you maybe don't even in Nashville, you know. It's funny Robert Altman considers this his only horror film, and having watched a whole bunch of his films, he's so wrong on that. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, most you, of his you, most you of can, his movies are horror movies. You can you can certainly add that Cold Day in the Park and Three Women to that, mm. and um, yeah, quite a few more. Definitely. Well, I think a lot of his politi- political ones as yeah, well have yeah, the element of horror yeah, as well. Yeah. That's kind of covered mainly a lot of his, his his themes and plots. Obviously, he he carried on directing way beyond the nineteen seventies and eighties. But a lot of the themes that uh, that he established in his work, the the ensemble casts, the male flawed psyche, the the female breaking down psyche, the plot lines tended to carry on throughout his career in in in, in different forms and different ways. Yeah, example there is that Julian Fellows wrote uh, Gosford Park, which was his sort of preamble to uh, what's the TV Downton show? Abbey. Downton Abbey, yeah, that he, he's famous for. And this was his sort of proto version of that, you know, his sort of prototype for Downton Abbey. And he wrote this script and was sort of shopping it around and Altman got to see it. And you'd think, you know, British country house movie, you know, upper class characters that's that's not really robert altman but altman apparently really took to that script and saw it as oh a, 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 an ensemble cast mm-hmm. that that's me you know he, and, and you can definitely see a wedding yeah in 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 the way the approach is yes. gosford park particularly yeah, in its yeah. themes of sort of like the rich upstairs and downstairs the rich and the poor the posh the non-posh yeah yeah and of, of course a, a wedding itself is 1978 film came sort of half out of a gag, didn't it? You know, or a little chance remark to a reporter. Yeah. Uh, he, he was interviewed by a reporter um, in the, doing the publicity for Three Women. And how, how the hell do you publicise that movie? I don't know. But it's, it's funny, it's even better than that. He, what he said was like, this, he says, um, we was on set at this, this, um, this spa in the middle of nowhere sort <laughs> of thing. And then out of the shimmering haze of the desert... Emerged this uh, reporter from like a, a small magazine in Texas who comes to interview us. Yeah. Almost like it's the uh, Geraldine Chaplin character from, 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 Nashville, from Nashville, yeah, which was two years earlier. Yeah. So, or, or any number yeah, of yeah, characters yeah, that yeah. come out of the shimmering yeah, haze yeah. or the, 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 the snow or whatever, you know. And he, he depicts that meeting as if it's one of his movies. Yeah. And she says, What, what, you know, first question out of the gate was, What's your next movie about? I'm still doing this movie. That's what he's made. I'm like, I'm still doing this movie, never mind that. But he said as a joke, 
we're going to do wedding videos from yeah, now on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that obviously stuck with him. <laughs> the yeah. joke being yeah. used. In, but I arguably, as I said to you, arguably, a wedding is a perfect setting for an Altman movie. Ideal, yeah, yeah as, as it proves to be. So yeah, um, so Gosford Park and, and the, the, the next film, The Company, mm. um, with uh, Malcolm McDowell, um, shows that... Uh, he was still capable of doing, and I, even his last film, I guess, uh, Prairie Home Companion, mm -hmm. harks right back to Nashville, really. You know, what a way to finish. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, again, you're in that world of sort of old-time music and old-time radio and stuff. And again, he's so with those final three films, he's sort of showing, yeah, you you ensemble fans, I, I've still got it. You know, I've not forgotten you. Mm. You know, there might be no more secret honours from me, but uh, you're well catered for. But yeah, I mean, he... Um, his, his, and the satire never left him either. You know, the the player, which became one of his biggest hits and perhaps the film he's, he's best known for, really, I think, mm, amongst possibly. modern audiences. Yeah. There's 65 major parts in that, although they're much, much shorter, obviously. You know, they're not quite as expansive as the ones in Nashville. But a, a chance for lots and lots and lots of massive... Hollywood stars to get a chance to work with Robert Altman mm. and boy did they queue up to do so thank you very much Daryl um, that was an exhaustive uh, run of looking at um, Robert Altman movies we will be doing a season at Quad in uh, July hopefully we'll see you there for some great Robert Altman movies of the 1970s uh, I want to thank BFI and Quad for supporting these podcasts and we will see you again in a couple of weeks time take care